Welcome to season three of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green, and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. Before we get started, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you that have subscribed, listened, and reviewed the episode. I really do appreciate you taking the time. James Nottingham is regarded by many as one of the most engaging and thought-provoking presenters in the world of education. He is the author of 10 books and developed the concept of the learning pit. Learning occurs when you step out of your comfort zone, and yet many people are hesitant to take the step for fear of making mistakes or revealing their weaknesses. That's when the learning pit helps, to encourage and reassure learners that taking risks Asking questions and trying new things can help them develop their abilities and deepen their understandings. In this wide-ranging interview, we talked about the importance of creating opportunities for cognitive conflict with your students, the role of metacognition and self-reflection, and the importance of adopting a growth mindset. I was left profoundly impacted by my conversation with James. He talked honestly about his experiences at school and why he found it so challenging. He reminded me of the primary role of teachers, and that's to connect and engage with our students. James is an incredible communicator, and I hope that you get as much out of this episode as I did. I truly believe this conversation with James can and will transform your teaching. James Nottingham, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's a delight to join you. Thanks for the invite. You are more than welcome. Uh, uh, just a couple of rapid fire questions. Um, I'm aware that it's uh, coming up to midday over in the UK and it's a bit, little bit late over here. So get the, uh, getting the blood uh, pumping. Uh, what's uh, the view out of your nearest window? Um, a garage, a pub and McDonald's. Fantastic. What an eclectic, uh, an eclectic mix of venues. Yeah, that's just from the office window, yeah. So, Lovely. Uh, Whereabouts yeah. are you planning from in the UK? So we're, our office is in Annick in Northumberland. Uh, so Northumberland is the most uh, northerly uh, county in England. It's on the Scottish border. And uh, if I were able to crane my neck out the window, I might be able to see Annick Castle, where the Duke of Northumberland still lives and lords it over us peasants. <laughs> Fantastic. I noticed just before you hit record that you're wearing shorts. Uh, so it's nice and, uh, nice and sunny <laughs> over in the UK. Uh, no, not really. Although uh, I think uh, it might even hit double figures soon. Um, no, from from May to September, I just live in shorts. It, it's just uh, optimism. That's the, that's that's what I call it. Um, Lovely. Lovely. Most people call it stupidity, but uh, yeah, it, it's even got into twenty whole degrees centigrade this summer. So you Look, know, that, that is a. That, that that's a cool winter's day for us so it's hard to uh, it's very hard to remember. yeah yeah yeah, yeah but yeah. um quite possibly the most uh, important question uh for our conversation what's your coffee order when i can finally buy your coffee oh i love a double espresso macchiato please double espresso no, mu no mucking around there straight to the point no no let's get in there although um uh, pre-pandemic uh my last trip to Oz. And I make about three trips uh, there each year. And uh, I was working uh, with a school in Brizzy. And uh, they asked me exactly that, what's your coffee order? And I said a double 
espresso macchiato, please. And I was presented this. And of course, it comes in a really, really small cup. And as I walked in, there were um, women on the front row. And as I walked in, they said, that's the smallest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Which was not the welcome I was hoping for, but you know, little, uh, little off pudding as you're about to speak. Yeah, it was really. Wow, um, that's uh, I don't really know where to go with that, but that's uh, <laughs> yeah. Pro move on. Move yeah, on. yeah. So, um, what's a, a book that you've uh, that you've read that has caused you to reconsider things? Oh, so many, so many. Um, but the one that um, I would say changed my attitude and impression of education um, would be Teaching Thinking by Matthew Lippmann. And Matthew Lippmann is the guy who uh, created the idea of philosophy for children. Wow. Um, and I, I fell into teaching in a very circuitous route. Um, and when I got to teacher training college, um, I was recommended this book and it just turn my head upside down and and so if you're looking for one that has changed me I would say that book amazing do you have any uh, uh do you read uh widely outside of education or do you tend to stick within that field I I try to read as much outside of education as I possibly can yeah. um so I'm um uh, you mentioned your wife is South African um, mm. reading uh, Trevor Noah's uh, biography, autobiography right now, Born a Crime. Brilliant. And uh, I love um, autobiographies. That would be my favorite. Wow. Um, but um, yeah, I, I try to read as much as possible. Kindle is a marvelous thing, isn't it? it sure you can have so is, many yeah. books on, on, on one device. What are you, um, a bit of an aside, uh, why is it autobiographies that you are so drawn to is it something about the lessons of people yeah, who I think so I think it's I, I, I love fiction also yeah. um but I think there's something about the true story the true yeah. nature and I, I find it fascinating the obstacles people have overcome and yeah. um there's not one autobiography that I've read that yeah. doesn't include an awful lot of trauma or an awful lot yeah. of obstacles and everybody's going through it yeah, which is, and maybe not today, uh, yeah. although of course millions are, um, but yesterday yeah. and tomorrow, and and so we're all going through it. So it, it, yeah. it's a, it's a strong reminder. I always find it so reassuring because, like you, um, you sort of in many cases idolise these incredible people who have done amazing things. But I think mm. you get that within their story is such a struggle of of actually getting through some really difficult things. So I find autobiographies yeah. absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I, I um, would challenge anybody mm. to find a successful person. And mm. of course, I, I would like to put inverted commas around the word successful there because I, I, of course, don't mean in money terms, although that might be part of it. it it's much more to do with having um, changed the world for the better, having influenced, yeah. having... Yeah. Uh, being perfect or not so maybe you can't say perfect but a brilliant parent you know there's so many things yeah. and I bet you can't find one successful person who hasn't been through a hell of a lot to get there yeah or, or they're just lying and they just are not being <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 exactly they're trying to make it seem so very easy yeah, yeah. your um your lead up to teaching has been absolutely fascinating I mean everything from a um a, 
pig farming to working for the American Red Cross to a teaching assistant mm. working in a school mm. with with deaf children. It's really, really interesting. Your sort of eclectic uh, move mm. into education. Um, uh, would you mind just explaining a little bit about what your upbringing was like and, and, and why, how you ended up where you are today? Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, uh, yeah, childhood is probably best uh, forgotten in a lot of mm. ways, and I try not to re reflect on it too much, but I hated school. I think I probably liked primary school. I don't remember very much about it. I attended about six different primary schools. Wow. As my father was in the Air Force, and so we moved and moved and moved and moved. And, yeah. But I think they were generally all right. Yeah. Um, I, I do remember studying dinosaurs every single term. <laughs> Every move to a new school. Guess what we're going to learn? I mean, I, hell, why I'm not a paleontologist, I'll never yeah, know. Yeah. But, um, um, but then secondary school, my father had come out of the Air Force and we'd settled back in Yorkshire. And uh, um, two months into secondary school life, my mother died. And so I, I kind of went off the rails a bit and yeah. didn't know how to to respond to that. And one way, and I suppose a lot of kids do this, um, they act out. You know, I think it's probably the same in Oz as it is in the UK. We rally against Americanization of our language. You know, it's, it's like, uh, how dare they uh, bring in, uh, we're wearing trousers, not pants, you know, and the, these are trainers, not sneakers. Yeah. But I think there's one phrase that um, I wish that we would adopt in the UK, and that is acting out. Um, I think that's a very strong phrase that the Americans use for bad behavior. The kids are acting out. And I think yeah. that yeah. Um, gives a lot of insight into a lot of behavior. Of course, not all of it, but I would suggest the substantial amount of it. And I certainly was acting out uh, a pain, a trauma, you know. And so I got labeled as a, a naughty kid. Um, and of course, once you get a label, it's pretty hard to shake the thing. Yeah. And uh, this is one of the things that drives me in education. Um, I used to act out because then the teacher would notice my bad behavior. Then they would warn me about my bad behavior and they would watch me for my bad behavior. So guess what? I was getting attention. Yeah. And then they would send me out of class because of my bad behavior. And every single time a teacher spoke to me about my bad behavior, I thought to myself, I've got you exactly where I want you mm. because you're not looking at my learning or yeah. rather lack of learning. You're not looking at my lack of understanding. You're yeah. not digging into why do I not understand? Because to me, and I would guess to 90 something percent of kids, it's much, much better to be thought of as naughty rather than to be thought of as stupid. Mm. And so I got sent out so many times I got kicked out at two schools and I absolutely hated school um but I love I love dossing around with my mates you know and then um did my O levels um at 16 and thought I'd just leave school but then it turned out a whole load of my mates were staying at school <laughs> and I thought ah. Oh, I thought we were all going to go and bum around Europe together and uh, that didn't quite work out that way and then um and the father kicked me out at that point. So that's why I went and lived on a pig farm because uh, I had to earn some pennies somehow. Wow. And first day on a pig farm, uh, the initiation exercise was to make sure that the prize boar put um, his, uh, shall we say, his product 
where it was supposed to go. And that was my first day on the pig farm. It was, uh, but I used to love standing in the pigsties and the, the little uh, piglets would nibble your legs. Best massage ever. Put a pair of wellies on or gum boots, right? And just let piglets nibble your your calves. Just immense massage. But, they will uh, always be, uh, they'll always be wellies, by the way. I refuse to. Uh, refuse okay, good to man. Yeah. yeah Two right. I mean, gum boots. What the hell's that all about? You know? <laughs> At least it you really can see Wellington boots. At least you know it. <laughs> yes, one puts on one's Wellington boots. And, really? um, James, that, that's it's so it's so fascinating. And the thing that like has come up time and time again with um, uh, working through your uh, reading through your work and uh, and listening to your some of your incredible um, presentations and talks is that focus on learning. And it's mm. not necessarily about sort of school structures. It's not about a discipline it's not about kids that are acting up or, but you, you really why are you so focused on the, the actual learning that's happening in classrooms and why is that so important because it seems as if um even though and, and this is just an assumption i'm making even though you were acting up at school even though you were kind of mucking around a bit you you still seem to have this thirst for learning and knowledge is is that is that true do you think that's have I ever, I've ever... Yeah, I do. I, I feel as if I'm making up for lost time, and yeah, that's yeah. a personal thing. But I think most of all, it's a mission. Yeah. Being on a mission. Um, yeah, having left school and bummed around at different jobs, realising I, I, I didn't really want to be a pig farmer for the rest of my days. <laughs> so then I, I went to a chemical factory, and I thought, this is even worse, yeah. you know? And... Um, and you know you go into a chemical factory and then it's just everybody goes down the pub straight from the factory and you're just tanking it and you're knocking back beer after beer after beer and you just think this is night after night after night and you live in almost hand to mouth and I thought there's got to be more to it than this mm. and then some mates of mine were heading down to uh, South Africa this was in 89 so as you'll well know sort of 89 90 and um, so the, the breakdown of apartheid and uh, Mandela was released in February 90. And, and so this was late 89 and they were going down to do some, uh, some voluntary charity work in some of the squatter camps and townships outside of Cape Town and off. And I thought, well, what the hell, I'll, I'll go do that. And we worked in a women's cooperative and we worked in a men's hostel. And then one of the things that we did was we worked in a school and there was 500 kids in that school and just three trained teachers. Wow. And I helped as best as I could, but all the time thinking to myself, I'm gaining more than the kids are gaining here. Um, but I, I felt as I found a, a sort of an affinity wow. and a, a, a found that I built a rapport quickly. And so I, I thought to myself, well, maybe. Uh, teaching is something for me um, wow. and I came back uh, to the UK a year later and uh, tried to get into teacher training but I didn't have the grades at all because I'd stuffed up at school so then I got a job as a um, working in a deaf school as a teaching assistant wow. and um, so then that was enabled me three years later to get into teacher training Gosh. college and throughout that it was we're here for the learning aren't we yeah Surely we're here for the learning. And there's so many 
distractions that drag us away from that learning. I mean, you mentioned uniforms there, and, and that's something that Australia and UK share, I think, is pretty much every Commonwealth country. In fact, I've got this theory that if you drive on the left, then you put your kids in uniform. That's my theory right now, okay? But um, we seem to be, there's this distraction, and I, I mean, I'm sure you were the same at school, you know, if you wanted to get a rise out of the teacher, you just you change the way you wore your tie, you, you know, you'd make it super fat or super thin, or you'd undo your top button, or you'd do something, it was something to do with uniform. And it's, I am, um, it, it, it's always been a thing for me that there's so many distractions in school and not enough emphasis on learning. Mm. Um, and still to this day, um, yeah. let's say about feedback, I think there's, uh, school leaders around the world focusing way, way, way too much on checking that the teachers have given feedback. I mean, what the hell? Why are we looking to see whether teachers have given feedback? Surely what we should be looking for is what impact did it have? In other words, what did the kids learn from it? Did the kids understand it and apply it really well to improve what they were doing? Wow. And if not, well, then you know so it's all about the learning it seems to me that and I um this was I don't know a year or two ago I've got three kids and my eldest is 15 now and she her, her and her mates were hanging this must have been pre-pandemic because it was like 10 of these gangly teenagers it was like acne and limbs everywhere you know <laughs> and I thought I'd try and be groovy dad and hang out with these kids you know, as you do. And of course, I, I was anything but groovy. But anyway, I, I said to them, uh, what do your teachers value? And they're like, Whoa. I said, all right, well, what do your teachers care about? And to a kid, they were all went, ugh, all our kids care about is what you look like. And I'm like, what? I've, I don't know any teacher who cares about kids' looks. And they said, no, what you look like. And I'm like, I don't understand what you mean. And they said, they just can't help themselves. When they pass you in the corridor, when they see you outside, when they're waiting for something to happen, if they see you lining up, they can't help themselves. They have to mention the uniform. Wow. And I just thought to myself, those teachers, and I know a lot of the teachers at that school, and they're doing a, you know, they're working hard and they want to do the best for their kids. But it's so much of it is undone by loose comments like, uniform you know imagine if if we change that to uh in the corridor you know when was the last time you were in the learning pit or what's the what's the best question you've heard today or um, what are you what are you thinking about at the minute that's helping you to learn or your very first question what is it that uh, changed your thinking you know any question at all any emphasis on learning and i see we do a lot of work um, in Scandinavia, and of course they don't wear uniforms there. And I went to a, a school where they weren't allowed to wear footwear either. And this was a high school. And as I walked in, they said, can you take your shoes off? And I'm like, uh, what? I said, yeah, nobody is allowed to wear shoes in the school. And of course I hadn't come prepared. They'd all come prepared with big fluffy socks, but I hadn't come prepared and didn't have holes in my socks when I took my shoes off. So there I was in my suit with really? uh, looking as posh as I can with holes in my socks and uh, to make a presentation. Matching, to, like I, uh, well, actually they probably weren't, but thanks <laughs> for the, uh, and it was the calmest, um, what wow. should we say? The calmest and most focused high school I've ever been in. Wow. 
because wow. there wasn't this clumping around. And it's really hard yeah. to, to be anything other than relaxed when you've got big fluffy socks on your feet. And I just thought, you know what it is? Well, and they were focused on their, and it's just, to me, nice. let's, let's, and I'm a fan of uh, uniforms, don't get me wrong. I, I like the fact that my kids don't have to, we don't have to have arguments every morning about what they're going to wear. But I think that, you know, there's too many distractions. We've got to focus on the learning so much more. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't um, I couldn't agree more, James. I think it's it's fascinating. It's very hard to take yourself too seriously when you're wearing fluffy socks. <laughs> it really is, isn't it? It's yeah. just it, it's really and I think there's I wonder if there's something in that because I think uniforms are about conformity and about regulation and about predictability and it's um and I just think that learning sh- or not learning school should be anything but that. And I think it's really um, the uniforms don't matter. It's symbolic, I think, of a, of a much broader thing. But um, it, it's it's so fascinating. I I I, uh, I would love at some point to hear more about that because it just seems so interesting. And and you would be in such a privileged position to get to go into multiple schools to get to work with some incredible educators and see mm. um, some of the differences that are happening. I think it's I think it's fascinating. And one of the um, one of my favorite stories that I've heard you told was, uh, and I would love you to spend a few moments unpacking it. I don't want to do it a disservice or injustice by trying to mm. paraphrase you. Um, uh, but you, it was um, a lesson uh, talking about the learning pit in which you asked your students to unpack the term tourist. And I just oh, yeah. thought that was a really incredible story. Would you mind just spending a few moments talking about that and obviously um, moving sure. for those people that are not familiar with the learning pit, um, explaining what that concept is and, 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 what you saw that day in that, in that classroom. Of course, yeah, I'd be it's happy a really to. Lovely story. Um, well, you see, the, the, at the heart of it is we, we have to teach our students how to think yeah. as well as what to think. Absolutely. You know, I want my kids to get good grades. Of course I do. I want them to do well in the NAPLAN test. I want them to get good grades. But good grades are not sufficient. We also need them to be thoughtful, imaginative, creative, reasonable, collaborative, et cetera, et cetera. We need that. And so I think we have to give um, a reasonable amount of time, a good amount of time over in our schooling, in education generally, to teaching students how to think. And so that's one of the drivers for the learning pit. And the other driver for the learning pit is this idea that we very often get worse before we get better. That when we try something new, something different, very often we, we get some early success, but then we start to struggle a bit. And it's like, wow, well, what do we do? And a lot of kids give up at that point particularly if they're not used to struggle, they give up. And so the learning pit is this idea that it's normal to get worse before it gets better. So hang on in there. We'll be right. Let's get in the pit together. Let's think together, collaborate together, question, challenge, support each other. And as we do that, that will help us to come out of the pit with a much greater sense of understanding. And so there are times, of course, when we find ourselves in the pit anyway. I mean, this pandemic has put us all into the pit. You know, we've all had to learn how to 
um, teach online and even more challenging to teach in a blended way way where we've got some kids in the classroom and some kids online I mean that's that's a challenge and a half we found ourselves in the pit okay so there's times when we find ourselves there but to me there's other times where we should practice being in the learning mm -hmm. pit practice yeah. struggling so that we get more used to struggles so that we develop more um, what should we say, resources, and I mean mental and psychological and social resources for dealing with struggle. And so the learning pit is about purposefully causing struggle in students' minds. I love that. And so that, that they, it's almost like, you know, yeah. physical training. We want, you know, in PE lessons, we try to stretch them and challenge them so that they struggle, so they're more used to it. It's the same here. I love that analogy that, and, and sorry to, uh, to interrupt or jump right. in. I love the analogy when you talk about cognitive conflict and just how important yeah. it is to actually, to actually cause those moments of struggle and, and to do mm. it in an environment that is safe, to do it in an environment that mm. builds that resilience. Because I know as a, as a dad to two small girls and as a teacher to an even bigger group of older kids, um, it's yeah. so easy just to jump in and fix the problems. But I loved that sure. idea of actually just sitting back, supporting them in the pit and actually asking some of those questions that really causes them to think. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. And, and I've heard people describe what you've just talked about there as the rescuers. We, we rescue yeah. our kids. We, we want to, you know, because it feels good. It feels we, like you're important. Yeah. I know. I yeah. know. It, it's just it, it does, exactly right. But, you know, um, when we teach kids how to ride a bicycle, for example, when they wobble, we don't run alongside and grab hold of the bike to stop them wobbling. Mm. We encourage them to keep going until they get it. And that's what that's the approach I think we should be taking here. You know, encourage them. Don't stop them wobbling. Encouraging them to keep going. And so the, the story you mentioned there about the tourism, that's an example of me trying purposely to get the kids into the learning pit by um, asking questions. And I, I, I thought to myself, they've probably got a fairly surface level idea of what tourism is. And what I want to do is get them into a position where they're thinking, wow, it's a lot more complicated than we suspected. And I wanted them to make connections. So I said, what are you studying at the moment? Because this was, I didn't know the class at all. I dropped in and did a demo. And I think that's one of the important aspects of what consultancy should be about is, look, give me a class of kids and I'll work with them. You watch their learning and then we'll talk about it afterwards. You know, so it gives the teacher the opportunity to, for once, to sit back and watch their students with others mm. and to focus on the students' learning rather than what they are teaching. So anyway, I, and I said to the students, what are you studying? And they said, tourism. And I said, and so all I said was, so, so what's that then? And of course, they're looking at me as if to say... Well, why the hell don't you know what a tourist is? Yeah. So this is a tourist is someone who visits another place. So what I did then, and this is a, a very, um, shall we say, common technique that I would use to get students in the pit, is take whatever they say and turn it round and look for an example uh, uh, in which it wouldn't work. So they said a tourist is someone who visits another place. So I'm thinking to myself, can I think of an example where somebody might visit another place 
but not be called a tourist. So that's the thought going through my head. And so I said, so I'm a tourist then, am I? I'm visiting your school. I've never been to your school before. Does that make me a tourist? And one of them pipes up, no, you have to be, have to be having fun. <laughs> I says, well, I am one. having yeah. fun. And you <laughs> could hear one of them say, well, he's weird, isn't he? And said, so if you visit somewhere and have fun, does that make you a tourist? And they said, well, yeah. I said, so if you visit somewhere and you don't have fun, does that mean you're not a tourist? And right. they said, well, no, you don't have to have a, you don't have to have fun. Okay, so do you have to visit? Could you be a tourist in your own city? You're in Sydney. So if you took a group of kids um, into Sydney and saw some of the sites, would you class those kids as tourists? Would they think of themselves as tourists? If they, let, let's say, I don't know, they, they go across to the zoo, right? And they're at the zoo. Are those kids tourists if they love, live in the suburbs of Sydney? I, I would argue not. Why not? But I also love, but I also love being a tourist in my own city. So that is a whole nother discussion. Like I feel like the th one of the things I love doing in in holidays, and we haven't obviously done it so much because Sydney is currently locked down, mm. is going and visiting Sydney and pretending I'm a tourist and discovering all these new and wonderful things. So, um, now why do you have gosh. to pretend to be a tourist to do that? I'm in. I'm in the pit now. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know to be honest. I, I think that tourism. I feel like. Oh, I feel like tourism is somewhere where you go for a short period of time. That is not your home. I feel like I'm one of those kids in the class now. This is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So, just tell me when you say a short period of time, how shortest or rather at what point does it stop being tourism that's a great question i think when you're there longer term you live there um so i think maybe maybe two weeks i don't know <laughs> <laughs> so if you go on holiday to bali for three weeks are you only a tourist for the first two weeks maybe it's as long as my boss will allow me to have off work Okay, well, you know, teachers, they have all these long holidays, you know, 13 weeks holiday every... So you're a tourist for 13 weeks a year. Is... is no, is tourism... <laughs> this is great because... Do you know what I can feel now, though, James, is my... I can feel that struggle in my response, which I think is really important, which actually feels like quite a unusual and foreign thing because I'm usually on the other side of asking those questions with mm. kids and so it's really mm. great so I actually don't know I think my definition of a tourist has been changed and I need to try and work it out so I, uh, I appreciate yeah. that um, well, and I think it's, it's important that yeah. you know I know this is a podcast but yeah. if if people could see us they'd yeah. see the smiles yes, both of us of are smiling um, at this and, and be quietly laughing as well. I, it's very, very, very important, important that we're playful with this. This is not point scoring. I'm not trying to prove you wrong. Yes. And it, it, sometimes I, I, you know, it's important to say that to kids. Hopefully it's implicit, but often we have to say that, you know, this is not about point scoring. My purpose here is to get you to think more. Yeah. That's it. You know, and some kids will turn around and say, well, you tell us what a tourist is. Yeah. I say, well, to be honest, listening right now, I'm not very sure what a tourist is. Yeah. And yet we're studying tourism. Yeah. 
and we're studying studying tourist numbers and how important tourism is to Sydney or New South Wales or to Australia generally. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's fascinating. We, we can look up tourist visitor numbers. We can look up the, um, the amount of money made from tourism for each country. But we can't. So, yeah, it must, exactly. But we can't define tourism. And it's just trying to get people to think more. And if we can pick concepts like tourism that are in the curriculum, so there's, there's no naysayers able to point out that we're not doing the curriculum anymore, because we are. Um, but I'm trying to get them in the pit to think more, because what I would love is for you and all your mates to head out of the classroom and argue about tourism and to talk about it when you get home and to look it up, to try to show me what a tourist is. And that, that's yeah. a big part of this. And it's about that learning. You know, that there was, oh, this is years and years and years ago, but um, somebody had said, uh, I was a, an attendee at a conference and this, the speaker was challenging the very notion that teachers have got even the uh, most significant role in a kid's education because she said just think about the amount of time kids spend in school so okay so this was in a UK context and typically our schools you're in school for six hours a day so nine till three or three thirty something like that but out of that time you generally have five lots of one hour lessons so they've got 25 hours of lessons per week the school holidays last 13 weeks by the time you got your summer your easter your christmas and then your, your half terms and so on and then there's also five days worth of um, school closures for teacher training so in effect the kids have 14 weeks so that of course leaves them 38 weeks in school and if you do 38 weeks times 25 hours and then you compare that to the number of waking hours in a year. So let's, let's hope that they'll be asleep 10 hours a day, a night. So they've got 14. And do you see where I was going with this? And so mm -hmm. they're saying, right, how many waking hours do kids have? And how many hours of lessons do the kids have? And now let's, what's the proportion? And I worked it out to be 20%. 20% of their waking hours in lessons. Now, of course, we can argue that it's not just in lessons that you're learning. And that then leads to this. If we can use lessons to provoke thinking such that the kids take it out of the classroom, take it home, take it into the playground, take it on their walk home, it gets them thinking more. And if we can, that would be one way to go is let's increase the amount of time kids are thinking about their learning. Yeah. Yeah, it, and there's so much in that, James. I mean, it, it's fascinating. I can see your, um, it's obviously an audio recording, but I, I can see your passion when you begin to start to talk about learning. It's, it's really wonderful. And how important do you think it is? Um, sorry, let me maybe ask a question. What do you think then the role of the teacher is becoming? I mean, it's obviously not just a, a holder of knowledge. I mean, Google knows way more than I could. So what do you think the role of the, the teacher currently is? And do you feel like that is, where do you think that's moving to in the future? Or has it always been the same? Yeah, there's um, Sagata Mitra who, um, okay, so you're nodding, you know his name. And he, his yeah. 
perhaps most famous experiment was called the hole in the wall experiment, yeah. Yeah. where he put computers in walls on the outskirts of slums in Delhi and said mm -hmm. to the kids, there's those computers, go play with them whenever you want. But they also um, got a random group of kids from the same slums and took them to classrooms and taught them how to use computers. And they compared them before and compared them after. Yeah. And guess what? The kids who had been left to play made a lot more progress because they were learning from each other. And there was this, this self-organized learning hubs, as he called them. And it was... Uh, and Sugata Mitra says that... Um, a teacher who can be replaced by a machine should be. And I thought, oh, thanks very much, Sagata. That's good of you to say. But notice he doesn't say all teachers should be replaced. Yeah. He's saying the teachers who can be replaced by machines should be. And what he's saying there is that if our, if the majority of what we're doing is giving kids information, well, as you said, Google can do that. Machines can do that. What you and I can't be replaced with, I don't think, is in helping the kids to make connections to their lives, to spot relevance, to connect across the curriculum, to ask those questions with a purpose of getting them into the learning pit. In other words, the machines, in inverted commas, can help and probably do as good a job because of their budget they can do as good a job with the surface level knowledge but what they can't replace us with is the deep understanding and by deep understanding i mean moving from knowledge to understanding yeah. moving from having lots of information to connecting it to sequencing it to grouping it to ranking it to um identifying what's relevant and what's not, to connecting it then and making sense of the world based on all the other things, and then using it, applying it, and adjusting it, Amazing. creating new things. Yeah. And that, I mean, the solo taxonomy is a really nice way of describing that. Solo taxonomy has that pre-structural, unistructural, and multi-structural level, and those are knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. You move from knowing nothing to knowing some things to knowing lots of things. Far too often in our curricula around the world, we stop there. Once the kids know the topic, too often then we move to the next topic. Yeah. But what we've covered there is surface, and we need surface. Yeah. This is not an either or. You have to have surface before you can go deep. But back to the solo taxonomy, the next two levels are that relational stage in other words, connecting, and at the heart of understanding is connecting, and then the abstract application. So it's taking the knowledge, working out what it means, and connecting it into how we understand the world and maybe adjusting the world, as we did when we talked about tourists, and then looking for, well, what can we do now to adjust that for another purpose? Yeah. And you, you mentioned John Hattie before. He and I have worked together many, many, many times. And one thing that um, I hear him say loud and clear again and again and again, it's not either surface or deep. It's not even surface and deep. It's about surface at the right time, deep at the right time. And teachers are the best at knowing when is the right time to move yeah. from surface to deep. Yeah. And so... 
the machines in inverted commas can provide information to help kids get that surface level knowledge but what they can't do and where we are irreplaceable i would say is in helping them to get deep learning to connect it to their lives and make sense of it so that they can enrich their lives and lead to new and different and one would hope better thoughts yeah absolutely i i couldn't agree more james it's so uh I feel like I'm getting goosebumps hearing you speak because I, I want to get back into my class and start teaching them some of these things. And uh, it's really, uh, yeah. really, really exciting. And like, we know what we need to do as educators. We know that we need to be connecting yeah. meaningfully with our students. We know we need to be yeah. designing these incredibly rich learning environments and, and building that surface knowledge with them and also building that deeper understanding. But why is this stuff so hard to do in a really structured school learning environment? Like, how do, how I, mean, do we... I think there's many, many. I think tradition is, has something to yeah. do with it. I think yeah. there's so many teachers in education who succeeded at school. Yeah. So, you know, why change it? It yeah. worked for me. You know, um, I think it's also down to history where education has come from because, of course, um, and I'm talking Western uh, education here because, of course, um, First Nation education is a, a whole lot different and based on stories. But if we talk Western education here, then it began with learn the holy book, learn the scriptures or the Quran or whatever religion, but, you know, learn the scriptures. And then in the industrial revolution in the Western world, there was this idea that maybe we need to educate more than just the richest kids. And so then education acts popped up left, right and center, including in Australia. And there was this idea that, well, we've got to help the kids. We've got to work out which kids are clever and which ones are not, which ones are going to go into the factory and which ones are going to run the factory, you know? Um, and so, well, how do we work that out? Well, testing is a good way to work that out. And so we'll, we'll teach them information and then we'll test it. And then whoever does well, whether they're the clever ones and they can wear a white collar um, throughout their adulthood and those who don't do very well, well, they can wear a blue collar, you know, yeah. and do manual work. And we're still stuck with that. Yeah. In so many ways. And you, you think to yourself, well, why? But tradition and we've always done it this way is a really 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 hard thing to shift um i think another problem is that some of the new whizzy bangy bandwagon yeah. glitzy things that have come along have been sold to us almost like snake oil it's like forget everything do this instead yeah. and it's like well actually, we do need to be literate and we do need to be numerate and we do need to get good grades. So uh, what are you talking about? That it's all about multiple intelligences, you know, and it's all about doing brain gym in the classroom. And there's, and of course, educators, we, we just, there's so much going on that you just think, ah, help. What, where do we go from this? And so I think it's it, we have to be careful we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater you know we don't stop teaching them to read and write and times tables and all those sorts of things but what i think we have to think of is what else do we need to do here 
What else do we need to prepare them for? And how are we going to do that? So there's simple things. I mean, student voice. I'm a massive, massive fan of student voice. I'm sure you are too. I mean, you can learn so much um, by just listening to your students. And that's one of the things we do in our, our team is we visit schools and we do the student voice because we find that students will often speak to us the outsiders, perhaps more honestly. And what we do is we say, look, we're going to audio record this and then we'll transcribe it and your teachers will get a transcript. So, but we'll remove any name that's mentioned. So any teacher's name, any child's name will be removed and it'll just be what you're saying. And it's fascinating. And I was doing this with a group of kids here and um, the, uh, I said, well, what helps you with learning? And they, they mentioned one or two things. And then this kid who recently arrived from South Korea says, um, well, I always look ahead to see what's coming next. And I learned that before the lesson. <laughs> and the, the Scottish kids are like, what? You're not allowed to do that. That's cheating. And this poor Korean kid's going, uh, thinking, oh, my God, he's, I've caused some cultural incident here. And he says, um, why is it cheating? And they said, well, you're not allowed to look ahead. And so I said, of course, well, why aren't you allowed to look ahead? So then they thought, oh, we don't have a good answer for that. But then, we, then they says, but how do you know? And he says, well, you're just looking like, if I'm thinking maths, and they've just been teaching um, percentages, there's a good chance now they're going to be doing fractions because they're kind of the same thing, aren't they? You know, so I just learned fractions before the lesson. Yeah. And one of the kids said, uh, is that why you're so clever? And the kids said, well, I don't know, but it helps me. Brilliant. And I said to everyone, well, would that help everyone? And they said, well, yeah. So then what we did was what we call preview. And it's uh, just every homework that we gave. And we didn't add any more homework. It's just we took the homework that was already given and we adjusted it so that it became preview rather than review. Amazing. So... Next week, we're going to be studying uh, percentages, or we're going to be looking at the Viking invasion of Britain, or we're going to be um, looking at and whatever it is. And choose wisely. Don't say next week we're going to be doing long division, so go and ask your granddad how to do long division. You know, you don't go for the things that you know is going to be a complete and utter nightmare. You go for the stuff that you think is going to help them. And then... That's the homework. And then the following week, it's a win-win because you don't have to mark anything because what you're doing is you start with, so what did you find out in, the last, uh, in your homework? Let's hear what you found out and let's see how we can use that. Yeah. And you adjust it and correct it there and then. But you know what they're doing is just moving one level on in that, you know, it talks about that solo taxonomy. And so the kids who knew nothing, now by the time the lesson begins, they know a little bit. And the kids who already knew a little bit, they knew, know quite a lot more. But I've actually heard teachers say, well, won't that spoil the surprise? <laughs> and I'm thinking, if surprise is the main part of your pedagogy, you might want to expand your toolkit just a little bit. This is not about giving away the, the yeah. state secrets. It's, heaven forbid, give the kids the opportunity to prepare. And if I might yeah. uh, rob a little bit more time and connect it back to, uh, you asked me at the beginning, my, my childhood story. I have lost count of the literally hundreds of hours I spent on detention. And I can still repeat to you now, 
Wow. Indiana Pink. Why, what a lie. It ain't no lie. I've seen it on the map and it's pink. Why can I repeat that? Because I've literally written that tens of thousands of times because detention was, we were, they called it in one of the schools I was at, statements. And statements was a list of statements, like utterly ridiculous things, like that quote that I've just given you. And you just had to copy it down. And the, it, the, it would always start at 50, right? 50 statements if you messed around. And if you messed around a bit more, right? 100 statements. And that was your detention. You had to write this damn thing out. It's like, you know, Bart Simpson on the blackboard writing out. And imagine if we changed every detention to preview. So if you put a child on detention, what you need to do is you say, right, this child, you're on detention, and this is what we're studying next week, so I want you to do research on that. So go and find out about tourism, or go and find out about, and I want you to write down some notes about what you found out ready for mm. next week. You know, mm. and so many kids, myself included, they act out because they don't know what's going on otherwise. They're not doing very well. They don't understand it. Give me preview. I could have used that detention to actually get ahead, to actually give me the opportunity to connect and get involved in the lesson. Amazing. And it, it's so, like, it, it, that's so interesting because I think we, we want to empower students to be able to succeed as opposed to catch them when they do the wrong thing or to, or to, or to make them feel inadequate when they don't know the answer. But if they sure. knew the answer then why, why am I here? You know, like, it's really, it's really, yeah. really interesting to hear that. And I think um, I, it's fascinating, James. And there's so, I have so many questions. And at some point we may have, would love to do a round two because there's just, I think your work is so, um, the breadth of your work is, is, is so um, impressive, but also I think what's so lovely hearing you speak is hearing the heart behind the messages that you're, uh, presenting and talking about it so it's so wonderful and I um I know uh that you're I feel like your experience in in school even though it was incredibly challenging and, and traumatic is it's great to see how you're using something like that to to really benefit a, a new generation of students and teachers mm. it's really it's really lovely to see how you can turn something which is so awful into something which helps other people so it's yeah, really, um, uh, really incredible to see. Um, James, just a, a, a couple of questions. Um, mm. 10 books, where on earth do you find the time to write 10 books? You know what? I've that's, asked myself that's that. That's crazy. That's amazing. Like questions just like, what the hell? Yeah. What? You know, um, uh, one thing I've learned from lockdown is how to slow down. Yeah. And how to, to rest and... Um, I asked um, that we start this at 11.30 this morning because I go swimming five times a week now. And so I drop the kids off at school and then I go for a swim. And, uh, and I didn't want to sit here a hot, sweaty mess, so I need time to cool down as well. And so I've learned to do that. And so I often think back to how in the hell did I find the time to write 10 books? But I, it, there's a you've heard you've you've seen me and uh speak now and i'm just so really passionate i think we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Uh, the these are little tweaks little what i would say are relatively minor changes that can make a really big difference yeah and i think i am in 
a fabulous, fabulously privileged position here because I get to go to so many different countries in so many different schools and see so much fabulous stuff that I think I've got to share that. Yeah. If I, if I wish that I'd heard that when I wish my teachers had heard that, you know, and I wish I'd heard it when I was full-time teaching because it it's not about working harder. It's about working smarter. Yeah. You know, and just getting, in fact, uh, stood in the queue for the swimming this morning and, and this woman says, well, so what do you do then? <laughs> are, are you some motivational speaker? And I, I hate that term, because it just gives the idea is like, hallelujah and wave your hands and yeah. so on. But I said, no, it's, it's more about um, just looking at what's the research and what's the best practice saying about what we can do to adjust things in our teaching that can have a really big difference on children's right. learning. And she says, well, like what? <laughs> so it says, well, take, for example, feedback. Um, if you said to me, I'm applying for a new job and I've written the first draft of my application, what do you reckon? Compare that to you saying, I'm applying for a new job. I've spent all weekend on this application. I reckon it's the best it can be. I'm about to send it. Will you take a look? Yeah. Now, compare those two situations. Mm. As the person being asked for to give feedback, which one are you more likely to give honest feedback? And which one are you likely to say, yeah, very good. That's lovely. Yeah, that's true. And the person asking for that feedback, which one are you more likely to be open to it and use that advice? And which one are you just, just tell me it's good. Yeah. You know, and I think so much feedback, particularly marking is given after students have finished their work. And it's like, well, what the hell? Why are we giving it then? Or it's like, you know, and people like say, oh, yes, but no. they're going to do it again next time. They said, yeah. yeah, but if you want them to do the best job now, and that, when you ask me the question, what's the role of the teacher? That would be something I would say in connection with feedback. Our role is as the coach, not the referee. Mm. We're the coach. Mm. We should be there on the sidelines, challenging them, urging them on, encouraging them, changing the tactics, helping them to improve, having the halftime team talk. We're not the referee who just blows the whistle every time they do something wrong, unless they're taking their national tests. If they're taking NAPLAN, well, fair enough, you're the referee. But the rest of the time, we're the coach. Mm. So it's those kind of things, Matthew, that it's just about adjusting things. What can we find that will improve what we do and really importantly, help students to learn more and when i say more i don't necessarily mean quantifiable but quality and yeah. and through social and emotional reasons as well so it's it's improve their learning let's call yeah. it that yeah well that's james that's that's amazing and like i said to, to hear you speak with such conviction and confidence is uh, it, it's so refreshing i um like i said i do want to be um respectful of your time so just two more uh, brief questions um the first one, um, what would you say to a, um, what would you say to a student that's sitting in a classroom now feeling disengaged, feeling um, like they don't belong in a school? What, what, what would you say to that student? Think about what you would have liked to hear when maybe when you were a boy from your teacher or, um, yeah, what advice would yeah. you give to that person? I think it would be much more about 
I would ask the question, what's going on? Yeah. Take the time. Yeah. Yeah. Listening. I think, you know, the student voice is so massive. I, um, I ended up in uh, intensive care in late 90s and, um, and they did test after test after test. Yeah. I mean, I went through, I mean, I was like a pincushion. I had uh, MRIs. I had the works. Not once ever did anyone say, what's going on in your life? And there were, it was entirely a psychological thing. Gosh. But that was never, ever, ever even considered. It was just, you know, they did more tests than I care to remember. Gosh. You know? And so I, yeah, what's going on? I think is the, is, and I don't mean that in a confrontational, challenging, what the hell are you doing kind of way. Yeah. I mean, in a very open, what's going on? Yeah, yeah, so important. I think taking that time to listen, I love your analogy of the the role of the teacher is not one of a referee, but it's one of a coach. Mm. And I think taking the mm. time to to ask those questions and to say, mm. how can I help you? I'm here to support you. Indeed. You're, a, you're mm. a champion. And I think um, it's really wonderful, uh, James, to finally get to have a chat. Um, and uh, I've been such a fan of your work for so long and, and, and your your passion and your conviction for the work that you're doing and for the, the lives of students that you're changing um, all over the world is, um, is really, really inspiring. So please write another 10 books. Um, I will, <laughs> I'll, I'll buy them. Yeah, um, uh, yeah thanks. But um, I don't know where you'll find the time. Maybe you might have to swim four days. I don't know. I don't know where you'll find <laughs> Yeah, um, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, but um, for those people that would like to find out more about your work, uh, where can uh, where can they find out more about you? Uh, the best place would be um, our uh, team website. That's challenginglearning.com. And that was the name of my first book as well, Challenging Learning. Yeah. Um, and I chose that name because I think we need to challenge the way in which learning takes place. Yeah. And I think we need to make learning more challenging. Yeah. And by challenging, I mean engaging. So, but anyway, challenginglearning.com. Great. And I'll, um, I'll put all your resources and everything in the show notes on the podcast. But um, um, I'm incredibly grateful for this conversation. And I, I, um, uh, I really do hope, and I know that, that so many teachers around the world will, will find hope in your message and also be inspired by your work. So uh, keep it up. Thank, oh, thank you. you. So much. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for the invite. And thanks for not mentioning the, uh, the football the other day when uh, England got beat by Italy. So thank you. That was uh, very good of you. No problem. Thank you. Thank you so much, James. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.